0: This is what do. The professional podcast for very serious people. This is episode two. With me is Ben Cody of Styles Law. Hi, Ben. Hey Tom, how's it going? I'm doing good. You're a real estate attorney. Yes? Yeah, that's right. You are also an estate planning attorney.
1: That's also right.
0: So is that like Mr. Poe from a series of unfortunate events?
1: Never seen that.
0: Okay, it's a book. It was. Oh, a book. Yeah, it was for the. It was like. uh, It was thirteen books, like a kids' book series uh, for kids that didn't read Harry Potter because they didn't want to grow up to be communists. So estate planning. Yes. Does that mean like when you're dead? Well,
1: you usually aren't making any plans when you're dead, so it's
0: usually when you're alive. Uh, Well, you plan when you're alive. You know what? So estate. (laughs) Sorry. Does all that come into play? Because when I hear about a famous person dying and it's talking about their estate, is their estate made for when they die so that it's like all their stuff is still...
1: Yeah, so there's... uh, Estate planning is really putting together a set of comprehensive documents that allows you to transfer your assets after you die. But it also takes care of other things. So it's pretty comprehensive. So we're thinking about during your lifetime, uh, you might want to set up a power of attorney or healthcare proxy, guardianship nomination. So the way I like to put it to clients is while we're under the hood, I like to make sure everything else is running properly. Um, So we're going to look at a bunch of different things besides just what happens to your stuff when you die.
0: So are state sales planned ahead of time?
1: Uh, You mean like selling real estate?
0: Well, I was thinking like a, when you see a sign when I'm driving, yep. you know, garage sale, yeah, yard sale, estate sale.
1: Yeah, so estate sale can really mean it, – it, it. I don't think it's a legal term of art. So estate sale could mean uh your entire estate even when you're alive. It's just kind of like a synonym with yard sale and garage sale like you're saying. But you could also – Uh, Somebody after you die Your fiduciary Your personal representative Can sell all your stuff Uh, Have you ever been In one of those They're a little depressing Um, Walking through And seeing everyone's stuff And it's just Selling it for $2 a piece It's it's, I don't don't know I I don't like it
0: Yeah Because In a series of unfortunate events There are these three kids Their house burns down With their parents With them And they're putting The care of This is a kid's book Yeah It was dark Oh okay Um, and they're put in the care of a banker oh, that... who's in charge of their affairs. <laughs> oh, okay. How real is that? And the, the banker isn't responsible because in the parents' will, it says, like, they're, they're supposed to be put in the care of their closest living relative. And so he took that literally. So he, like, put them with their f- 15th cousin 18 times removed. He turned, into, turned out he was a bit of a, bit of a scummy scummy person.
1: Yeah, so we usually try and avoid that kind of uh, vague drafting. Um, so usually the whole reason you put together a plan is that you're not stuck with the default rule, uh, which is uh, your extended family might take your assets or they might petition to have um, uh, take custody of your kids in a, a custody proceeding in the probate court. Um, so if you're drafting properly, you're never really going to run into that. Um, but, you know, stuff happens.
0: So you got to you got to know very precise meaning of words. Uh it helps. One thing I I read in legal documents is it's a say for, for saith further not. What's that?
1: Um I don't know. We don't really use that. So the the terminology that we use often would be hereunder, forthwith, uh therein. So we use a lot of these kind of odd terms of art to uh, for really specific purposes in the contract, so that's uh, I guess that's a dodge because I, I I I don't really see contracts that use uh, the the term that you
0: use. Well, I'm, I usually see it in like the in like complaints, I guess, and stuff yep. and affidavits. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's kind of two schools of thought. Um, there's the uh, one school where you say this terminology has been used forever uh, we should really kind of keep the tra- tradition going uh, so uh, kind of a holdover would be if you draft a complaint it, it often says "Here comes the plaintiff in the above captioned matter it, that's it's stilted it's really not necessary when you can just say "Here comes John Smith, the plaintiff and says and keep going uh, you don't need special language it's it's one part of our legal system that is kind of, um, you, you really see it more in uh, these holdovers uh, from a, a bygone era, I guess. Uh, but the, the imprecise language, I think, gets in the way of understanding what's actually in the document or in the complaint.
0: What did you study in law school and what did you decide you wanted to do, like real estate and estate planning?
1: Yeah, that's a good good question. So in law school, I very vividly remember turning to people in my property class. So the the class where you learn about real estate and say uh, I said to the person next to me, I will never do real estate in my entire life. I hated it. I thought it was a waste of time. Uh, I really it wasn't. It just wasn't something I was passionate about. Uh, and kind of the the flip side of that coin is um, I was really interested in criminal law. Uh, and I think the, the reason is it's kind of the the way that an attorney uh, without a lot of experience can really interact on a fundamental level with how our society works. So you're basically practicing constitutional law from day one. Uh, and in other contexts, you would have to practice for 30, 40 years sometimes before you're able to argue in front of uh, the Supreme Court or really take on uh, constitutional law cases. Uh, and so criminal law was really an attractive place for me to settle and kind of uh, study. Um, And so I did all my internships in criminal law uh, and really didn't even think about real estate as a potential career at all. What changed? Uh, well, so I uh, interned for a judge. I worked for a private um, criminal defense firm. I worked for a private appeals uh, criminal defense firm. Uh, I worked at the public defender's office. These were all internships during law school, uh, and they were intellectually stimulating. I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the people. Uh, but what I found myself doing is feeling super guilty that I was on the outside and my clients were on the inside. So, I'd, uh, for example, it'd be Sunday afternoon. And uh, I'd sit down to watch uh, the the football game, and I would think, "Oh, I should be working on my brief because this person's rotting in jail, and he doesn't get the the benefit of being free uh, and what it was I don't think it was very healthy um, because very often the people that are on the inside, unless they're uh, wrongly accused, which I have a very strong presumption of innocence, very often it's a result of their own choice. And it was, I was finding it very stressful. I was finding it very depressing, uh, especially when I would go to court and all of the defendants were from uh, lower economic classes. Uh, and it really, it, it just wasn't something that made me feel good at the end of the day, even though I thought it was very important and very intellectually stimulating.
0: What is the bar?
1: Yeah. So the bar comes from this uh, – have you ever been in a courtroom?
0: Not in session.
1: So that that's uh, that's a good thing. So we go to court for a different reason. So we're, that's our office essentially. Uh, and if you're in a courtroom, you'll see that there's a dividing line. Uh, it's like a railing that separates the live action area from the gallery. So the gallery is where all the, the people sit that want to watch. Uh, and so that actual – Uh, uh, railing is called the bar. Uh, It's what separates uh, the people that work in the court from the people that watch the court. Uh, So back in, um, I don't even know what time period this would be, but in the old English system, uh, there would be a literal bar that people that were pleading before the court would walk up to. So if you're admitted to the bar, you're permitted to go and uh, solicit the court for relief and argue cases.
0: Okay. It's like a symbolic bar. It's not, you're a part, you're a bar? You're in the bar.
1: Uh, so we use it in the – I think the meaning changed. So there was – that's the physical bar. But then the bar really refers to the club uh, that attorneys get to call themselves part of. So there's the bar association. Uh, you can say I'm part of the bar. The bar doesn't like this. So it can really mean a, a bunch of different things. So the bar would be kind of the consensus of the attorneys if we're talking about an opinion.
0: Like the Rotary Club. Yeah. I still don't know what that is.
1: Except – what. <laughs> me neither except it's it's probably less fun. It's a little stuffy.
0: The government's what legally makes a, a a structure a house. Like I want to like what if you could just make a mud hut and just say like, "Yeah, fuck you, I live here."
1: So it's kind of interesting. You've hit the nail on the head with what the uh, requirements for a dwelling are, and it's all based on uh, the zoning bylaws, really. Uh, And so if you go to any particular town, uh, well, I I shouldn't say any, but all the towns I'm familiar with uh, will have zoning bylaws, and it's essentially the rules of uh, what goes in that particular town. And so if you look at what constitutes a single family dwelling, it usually includes a kitchen, a bathroom. Uh, It doesn't need its own sleeping area, but uh, something short of that. So if you don't have a separate bathroom, if you don't have a separate Separate kitchen, that doesn't qualify as a single family dwelling. Uh, so, in theory, it, it could be an accessory building like a shed um, or uh, something like that. Uh, so, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head. You probably could build a mud hut as long as you got the proper permitting and built it in the right place.
0: Yeah, because what's a kitchen?
1: Uh, They'll actually define that. So what you're going to find is that when an attorney is involved, they're going to think through all the different definitions and think about what you need to call something something. Uh, And so uh, if you look in the zoning bylaws, it'll actually define what a kitchen is. It usually has something to do with cooking implements like um, uh, a stove and oven and that sort of thing.
0: What's the weirdest house you've uh, closed on then where a kitchen could have been made of Play-Doh or just like a bowl full of celery sticks? It's like this is my kitchen. (laughs)
1: Uh, So one really strange thing that uh, a lot of people don't realize is that we don't really know much about the houses at all. And so I could do a closing. I'll know the address. I have no idea how many bedrooms there are. I have no idea what it looks like. I don't know the layout. I'll never have seen anything about it besides the legal description and the address. And people are really surprised at that. And it causes some tension sometimes because people will send us, for instance, their building inspector's report. And my response is, I'm not a building inspector. I have no idea how to read this. I don't know anything about houses, but I know how to transfer them and I know how title works. And so it's a a divisional labor in that sense.
0: So what's the furthest back you've seen?
1: Uh, Well, occasionally we'll have to go back into the 1700s. uh, But that's really to answer a specific question. Uh, So the location of an easement, for instance, or uh, whether something uh, there's a restrictive covenant that was carried forward from a uh, a very early deed. In most cases, it actually originates from churches. Uh, So churches are kind of this interesting class because they have protections under the First Amendment. So zoning really doesn't apply to them in large part uh, because any restriction that you put on a church can be struck down as uh, a restraint on a religion. Uh, But then the other piece to it is restrictive covenants in Massachusetts are are generally limited to a certain amount of time unless they're for a charitable or religious purpose. And so what you'll find is, uh, for instance, I had, I forget what town it was in, but we had a church recently where there was a, a, an area that could only be used for religious purposes. And so this person that wanted to uh, develop a condo in this church couldn't because the title insurance companies uh, wouldn't allow us to write a policy uh, because this person could only use it for religious purposes. They wouldn't allow us to remove that exception from coverage.
0: How many people that you've worked with gave a shit about haunting? Have people asked you, is this house haunted?
1: They haven't asked me if it's haunted, but they've asked to put language in the contract. So a representation. So the more common thing for somebody to ask for is a representation that the the seller will say, uh, to the best of sellers' knowledge, uh, no homicides have occurred at the property. Uh, And so we're using that as a proxy for ghost activity because we're saying if we don't know anyone's died here, then we uh, have a good sense that there aren't any ghosts. Um, I think it's kind of silly because – uh, it's really unenforceable. Even if we had a representation that says uh seller isn't aware of any poltergeist activity. How do you prove that? No court. In Massachusetts is going to acknowledge a uh, haunting, at least as far as I know. Um, so it, it, I've had people talk about it. Uh, the much more common thing is somebody using an astrological sign or a lucky number in some other term in their contract. So they'll say, oh, I can only close on June 28th because it's the sign of whatever. Uh, or they could say the purchase price is $337,624.37. And when I say what's what's with that very precise number they say oh that's my lucky number that's my kid's birthday that's blah 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 and in in those cases i rather than fight the crazy i just say okay yeah uh, we we can make it happen
0: uh what's the most expensive property you ever sold or you ever oversaw the selling of versus the cheapest
1: so the one that comes to mind was actually one of the first closings i was uh, involved with and it was actually a house Um, so this is the most expensive. It was on Nantucket and I think it was $2.65 million. So, uh, like I said, it was like the first closing I did. So I thought this isn't that uncommon. This is going to be something I do every day. I, I was walking around with checks for $2 million. Um, but sadly, that's not the case. Most houses are not in that range. Uh, that's definitely an outlier. Uh, we're really looking at the average being in the three to four hundred thousand dollar range. I would say in this part of the state. Uh, but the cheapest is probably a condo, uh, and I don't remember the exact amount, but it was under a hundred thousand dollars.
0: Oh, huh. When did houses become so goddamn expensive?
1: Um. I think sometime in the 80s, 90s. So if you look at history, housing was really cheap back through the post-war era and credit was about the same interest rates, maybe a little higher than what we're looking at now. And then there was uh, the inflation in the 70s, the oil embargo, kind of all those negative economic indicators um, really meant that housing prices went up because interest rates were really high. And so we actually, uh, one of my, (laughs) some of the most interesting closings are when uh, old timers come in and they're selling their house they've lived in for 50 or 60 years and they'll say i bought my house for eight thousand dollars and now i'm selling and one person was selling for 1.2 million jesus yeah it's uh it's unbelievable it's it it's they can't even wrap their brain around it it's so so different in price
0: so you think it was just like the combination of like years of these factors of like credit stuff and the oil embargo and new cell phones and power lines and internet. Well,
1: sort of. So there, there's two questions. One is why was it so cheap back then? Why could somebody on a a middle class wage afford to buy a house? And so you could say, do they have a cell phone bill? Do they have internet? Do they have cable? Do they have compulsory health insurance? Did they have all sorts of different expenses? Uh, Did they have student loans? That's a big one for people that are younger. The answer to all those were no. And so you could afford to spend more of your income on a house, but. The reason why it's so expensive now is back to, if you take economics 101, supply and demand. Too many people want to live in too small of an area. Uh, And when that happens, people are willing to pay above market. And so if you look at our culture, we're gravitating towards cities. Uh, People want to live in cities, whether it's for an ecological purpose, if it's for a convenience purpose, if it's for a lifestyle purpose, Uh, people want to live close to the action. And if you get too many people in one place, there's not enough land to go around, And that's why prices
0: go up. What do you think of also, uh, I've heard that mortgages have become longer term and it like is really demoralizing.
1: Yeah. So uh, I would say, and this isn't a hard number, but I would say over 90% of the mortgages that we do in our office are 30-year mortgages. 30 years is a really long time. That's, uh, for a lot of people, that's half their life. Um, And that's from what? Historically, I'm not sure. I I see a lot of older mortgages on our title exams and they could have a term of five, 10 years. So I think it used to be uh, that you could only get a short-term mortgage because uh, they were worried about a particular bank lending you money. So now when we originate, or we're not originating, but when we close on a mortgage, the bank in most cases that actually lends the money doesn't hold the note and collect payments. That's not really what happens anymore. So if you've heard the term secondary mortgage, mortgage market really what that means is when somebody lends money on a mortgage they'll take the note which is the evidence of the debt and then they'll sell it on the secondary mortgage market to another investor uh, and so that could be a large investment bank think of the size of JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo something like that uh, you could also turn it into a security which is what actually happened back in the 2008. Uh, housing bubble. Uh, And so if you're worried about selling these, you don't necessarily want people paying them back quickly. You want an income stream over time. And so by allowing this to go out over time and uh, through the amortization, you're able to keep the payment low, which allows people to afford more on a principal basis. So they can afford more house for a lower amount of payment. And so that's why banks love these mortgages that are 30 years. I think if they could lend a 50-year mortgage, they would. Um, the, uh, because you have the income stream lasting as long as possible, as long as it's a good interest rate and the bank is making money. Uh, they love to have borrowers. They, they don't make any money on the, the money that's in their account. Uh,
0: they make money when it's lent out on the street. For people in my generation, because I feel like this is a term That a lot of people, my generation and younger, just kind of pretends to know. Mm -hmm. What's equity?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. So let's say, let's not even think about it in the context of a house. Let's think about it in the context of a pencil. The pencil is worth, let's say, a dollar. But you couldn't afford to buy that pencil without getting some money from someone. I lend you 70 cents so that you can buy that pencil. You take 30 cents of your money, 70 cents of my money, and you buy it from the third party. You have 30 cents worth of equity. So basically, it's the value of the pencil less the amount of the liens or the the loans that are on the property. So, in the context of a house, if you have a $100,000 house and you have a $70,000 mortgage, you have $30,000 in equity. And that's so that's your money that. Could that be taken out? Sort of. So you could take out what's called a home equity line, uh, and so that's a loan that's securitized. Basically, it just means that there's a lien against the house for the amount of the loan, uh, and usually lenders will lend up to ninety percent of the value of the house. So if you took out, if you bought it and you put down thirty thousand dollars on that hundred thousand dollar house, you could borrow another twenty, essentially, so that your loan to value ratio,
0: we call it LTV, is ninety percent. What are the what are the pros? In cons of just having an apartment, because I've always, I've been told, oh, don't rent an apartment. It's like you, that's you, you're just giving away your money. If you won't, if you get a house, it's like you get to keep your money. You're paying yourself, but you also have a bunch of like homework literally to do.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of funny you asked me this. So I have friends that are renting, and they say, oh man, I'm throwing my money away. I'm I'm renting. I'm sending my paycheck to the landlord, and then I could turn to them and say oh man, I wish I was renting. I'm throwing my money away. I'm paying my money to the bank. But not only that, I have to repair my house. I have to pay for capital improvements. I can't move. I have to maintain insurance. Uh, So it's not all sunshine and roses if you own your own house because there's a lot more liabilities. Uh, And yes, you can take on the upside. But what happens when housing prices go down? So it's not they don't always go up. We saw that in 2008. Uh, When housing prices go down, not only can you have a negative uh, 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 value, so it, the prices can go down. You also have to pay for upkeep, maintenance, taxes, insurance, all these things that you don't have to worry about if you're
0: a renter. Yeah, because I, I thought about that. It's like it's like a con- you're paying for convenience almost.
1: Yeah. Um, so in theory, you're paying down principal uh, on that loan. So over time, naturally, you'll have more equity. Uh, so you'll have more value stored in the house. But generally speaking, if you took that money and you put it into the stock market, stock market historically gets 8 to 10% return. You're going to get a much better return than the interest rate that you're saving by paying down your loan. Um, now, all of this is uh, putting me out of a job. Uh, so we like it when people buy and sell houses. But if you're on the margin, if you're somebody that is going to struggle to get into that first house and you're not confident that the prices are going to go up because we don't know prices go up, it's not, it's not a given, um, then sometimes renting does make sense.
0: So, historically, I know that like most millionaires in the country became millionaires through real estate. Do you think that's changing? That real estate is not the most secure way to make your fortune?
1: I think real estate is a nice hedge. And the reason I think that is people always need somewhere to live. People generally always need somebody to somewhere to keep their business, ignoring for the fact or for a second that uh, AI could disrupt that. But generally speaking, real estate isn't a bad investment because. It has utility. It's something that's useful on its own. So, a bar of gold, uh, that's a store of value. There's really no intrinsic value to it besides what somebody's willing to pay you for it. Now, you could say there's an industrial purpose to it. You can make jewelry out of it. But at the end of the day, it's not like a house. So, I can't live in a bar of gold, but I can live in a house. I can rent it out to people that need somewhere that they need shelter from wind and rain. Uh, So, there's kind of this. At base level, there's something useful uh, with real estate that not a lot of other asset classes have. If I have a share of Facebook, that doesn't even exist on a piece of paper anymore. It's in a broker account online. It's sitting somewhere on a server. I'm a, a series of ones and zeros. If I own a house, I have studs and sheetrock and shingles. There's stuff that I actually own that serves a purpose.
0: And how much responsibility – that's one of the thing I also think about is how much responsibility do you have for the upkeep of your, like, investment properties?
1: Uh, you mean legally or
0: practically? Let's start with legally.
1: Okay. So uh, if you have a mortgage, you covenant with the lender not to commit waste. And so that means you can't let it fall into disrepair. Uh, you have to maintain the value of the, the the security because think about it. The bank has an interest in that house. If you stop paying, they take the house. They want to make sure that it's kept up to date and uh, well-maintained practically speaking. So let's say there was no mortgage. Um, You need to maintain it so that you don't run afoul of health codes because presumably you have tenants in there. Uh, You can't run a slum where there's cockroaches and leaking roofs. So you have to make sure that you're maintaining all this stuff. And you also want to protect resale value so that when you go to sell this property, it's worth the money so that you can convert it into a different type of asset. Is it true people don't like pools anymore? Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, and I can tell you from experience. When So on our intakes, we'll talk to the property owner. And uh, so I told you before, I don't know anything about the house. I do know some things about the house, but it's not the interesting stuff. It's what kind of uh, fuel oil does it use? Does it have um, a trampoline? Things that really are not useful to most people, but help me understand uh, legal liability as well as what we need to do in terms of due diligence. And so one of the things that we added to our list is, does it have a pool? Because I would say 50% of the time, if there's a pool involved, there's a repair item. And if you buy during the winter, you can't inspect the pool. So we get the seller to represent, when I closed it, there were no leaks. Spring rolls around, there's a leak. How do you fix that? We either have to say the seller lied about it and knew there was a leak or a leak occurred over the winter when it was under a tarp when no one could see it. How do you resolve that? Um, Pools are extremely expensive. All the piping that's underground, it's specialized equipment. There's uh, specialized repair technicians that have to do it. They're fragile. Um, And not only that, if somebody falls in it and drowns, good chance you're getting sued. Um, So there's a lot of negatives with the pool, uh, and you have to counter that against Well, I actually use it. Most people don't actually go in their pools.
0: I feel like it's sort of, for like the dads, it's sort of like an extension of the garden, though. Like my dad, I don't know if he loves it, but it's like, I feel like he gets some sort of satisfaction out of it. Yeah. Well, I
1: can tell you when I mow the lawn at my house, I get this weird satisfaction out of it that it doesn't make any sense. I just cut a bunch of vegetation. Minecraft. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you kind of the, the monotony and kind of the pride of ownership. Now it looks well manicured. There's those little tire tracks going through the yard. There's, there definitely can be a sense of accomplishment in having a really pristine pool that's perfectly manicured. Um, but you, you
0: have to think about it. Is it worth the liability, the cost, the headache, all that sort of stuff? Well, we didn't have a choice. Yeah, it's because it's an in-ground pool. Yeah, like very. You know, it could definitely use a makeover. But I, I always love the pool, and I've been, I've been using them less and less.
1: But is it one? So
0: the pool you have is it? Is it heated or is it? It is not. Yeah, which is like a big turn off for me. Yeah, especially where we live. Do you think that real estate attorneys, estate planning attorneys, do you think an autist could do estate planning? We've heard real estate attorneys. Mark says, why not? Ben? Of course. He says, yes, guys. Why, Ben? Well,
1: estate planning is really a blend of a bunch of different things. Uh, One is uh, kind of memorizing the rules. Um, So it's really, there's a discrete universe of topics. um, And it's very mechanical in the way that we're going through the same items over and over again, asking the same questions to then recommend a different path for each particular client that's uh, particular to them. Um, the, uh, the consultations are very mechanical. We're working from usually a worksheet or an intake form. Uh, and so it's, it's definitely something that, uh, there's a personal touch to it where you're trying to connect with people and talk about very difficult situations. Uh, but the other thing that you have to really develop is, an ability to talk about very difficult, thi- difficult things without feeling self-conscious about it. Uh, you have to be able to talk to people about their kids dying before them. You have to talk about their own mortality. It's stuff that you kind of have to check your, your preconceived social constructs at the door and just say, I'm doing a job. It's, uh, I have to go through X, Y, and Z. And you just can't, you can't feel uncomfortable
0: about it. So the tr- that trademark brutal honesty would be very helpful?
1: Yeah, so you can't be a dick about it, but you you, you kind of have to, if you dance around and say, well, someday if you die, everyone dies. You kind of have to say, when you die, where does your stuff go? When you die, where do you want your kids to be taken care of? If your kids die before you, where do you want your things to go in that case? It's, it's brutal, it's tough, but it's stuff that has to be thought of if you're going to do a good job.
0: The death tax, as it's called. Yeah. The... Inheritance tax. What do you think of its role? It is like, because I see both sides. This is one thing where I see both sides. On the one hand, don't tell me what I can and can't give my kids. On the other hand, we don't want to establish landed gentries. Do you think we found a good middle ground?
1: Um, it depends. So it depends when you ask me. We're in 2018. The new tax law went into effect this year. Um and the federal estate tax threshold went from roughly five million dollars up to, I think it was eleven or something. And so now, really, the number that I use uh, for a married couple is roughly twenty-three million dollars before estate taxes become an issue at the federal level. For the vast majority of people in this country, no effect, um, uh, just because most people don't have twenty-three million dollars uh, sitting around in assets. One interesting thing, though, is Massachusetts has its own estate tax, uh, and it starts at a million dollars in assets. Um, do I understand where it comes from? Yes. we, Like you're saying, we want to prevent these dynasties. Um, and I'm not a big tax guy to begin with. I think in most cases money is better spent by the person that earns it.
0: So do you think that uh, I've heard this thrown around, that the only tax would be a sales tax?
1: Yeah, I think that makes sense. So it's a tax based on consumption. And Um, consents. Yeah, uh, because if you don't like the tax, just don't spend your money. Uh, Now, the problem with that is, of course, um, the person, a very rich person, and this is playing devil's advocate. I'm not saying that I actually believe this. A very rich person uh, could say, I'm going to live very frugally and spend almost nothing. And pay almost nothing in taxes, which if you're concerned about the bottom line and capturing as much tax revenue as possible, that's a terrible outcome. Uh, if you're a rich person who wants to preserve their assets so they can grow their estate and become uh, very wealthy, it's a great a great thing. Um, but one thing that I think we is very often forgotten about this is that um, lawyers exist for a reason, and so um, even if you come up with a tax or regulatory scheme. Most attorneys can find loopholes uh, or other ways around legitimate taxes. So in the news recently, Donald Trump, uh, there was a bombshell report by the New York Times where his uh, family um, avoided or deferred or whatever you want to say, hundreds of million dollars worth of taxes.
0: Yeah, because no one else would do that.
1: Yeah, well, they're, they're just the most public billionaire family. Uh, I think if you started peeling back the layers of the onion in other places, you're going to see the same thing happens. And so what ends up happening is that the very rich uh, are able to avoid the taxes. And I have no problem with it. If you hire a lawyer and they're smart enough to help you uh, legally not pay taxes, and I have no idea if Donald Trump's acts were legal or not. Um, Good for you. Um, But I know that somebody that's on that margin, uh, maybe the person that has 1.2 million in assets when their parents or when they pass and they're leaving it to their kids, they probably don't have a team of tax attorneys that's able to, to defer or eliminate the taxes altogether by creating credit shelters and other forms of exotic trusts in different jurisdictions. Um, so I think it's just if we can find a way to apply everything equally, great, if not, it's, I don't think it's working.
0: So Ben, another thing I've heard. A lot of it from you is that eventually the jobs of uh, attorneys and real estate and a lot of professions will be replaced by machinery, by the machines, the blockchain, the AI with the singularity coming. Do you see a way that you can step in front of that and say, well, if I if I help the creation of the machine, if I help in the development of this AI, because you are a professional, you know what the AI doesn't yet.
1: Yeah. So I think you have to take a step back and think about what you're actually asking the AI to do. So uh, we talked about title earlier, where we're essentially saying title is the chain of deeds from the current day back to whenever your starting point for uh, your title exam is. And if you look at the Registry of Deeds, at least in Massachusetts, uh, it's arranged in book and page, uh, and that should be very familiar to anyone that's gone through fourth grade math. It's X and Y. It's the location on a matrix. It's it's basically Excel uh, that was developed in the 1600s. And so uh, we have a piece of data in an X and Y coordinate on our uh, database. And what we're doing now is we're having humans go through and look at each piece of data, uh, whether it's a deed or a lien or some other encumbrance, uh, but there's really no reason in principle why a computer couldn't serve that function. Uh, And so what we would ask the computer to do is essentially locate the source of title, find defects, uh, do all the analysis on the title piece. The other half of what an attorney does is they facilitate a closing. They say um, the, these are all the figures. We're adjusting for taxes, insurance. We're um, doing, uh, generating documents. All of those things we do on a computer right now, the only difference is, is data input. So I'm typing the numbers in. But when a computer is smart enough to look at the public record to see what taxes are, to see what the final readings on utilities are, to see uh, how the loan works – all of that can be generated on a computer automatically, and those are the two basic functions that we serve in a real estate transaction, and they're no longer needed.
0: As I see it now, I feel like something, something very human, like putting something in the wrong column, would just ruin it for the robot right now. Do you, do you think it would need consciousness? To like make correct those very simple, stupid mistakes.
1: I don't know if consciousness is necessary. So a lot of the benefit of AI is that it's able to learn and develop its own systems. So the way that it's been described, is it's a computer that can build other computers to do other things. And so the and the the good thing about it is that you don't have to pay them wages. They don't take sick days. They don't sleep. Uh, they just work. Uh, and at some point, they're going to work at many times the function of a, a normal human brain. Um, in the application of uh, real estate, I think if you're able to show the computer a sample size sufficiently large – it's going to detect its own pattern of mistakes. It's going to say, oh, misspellings of names occur, so we're going to check the database for similarly spelled names. It's going to say typos occur with numbers, where numbers are switched, uh, transposed. And it's going to be able to say, okay, that's a possibility. I'm going to check it as part of my analysis. That's what... Human title examiners do, except humans have to think on a much slower speed. Uh, and while they can th- kind of make these logical leaps, one good thing about a computer is that it probably won't do that. And so when it says, oh, this uh, release, it's probably fine, it looks okay, a computer is going to say, oh, there's a missing digit here. We need uh, either human attention or we need a corrective document. Um, I think that's where the real power is going to come in. They don't get tired. They don't make mistakes. Uh, they're, now, they're only as good as the program, but if the computer can program itself, in theory, it's going to uh, uh, get
0: better and better over time. Ben, thank you for coming down. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. You, you get, hope you have, have you back someday. Yeah, I'd love to. You've been listening to What Do, presented by Top Artist, patreon.com slash See you around